Hello and welcome to TanakhStudy.com. This is Shani Tarragon, and today we're going to conclude with the laws of Tarat before proceeding in our upcoming shirim with other physiological forms of Tum'ah. This is the perfect time then for us to turn our attention to the broader structure dealing with the laws of Tarat that began in chapter 13 within the broader complex of the laws of Tum'ah and Tahara. These parshiyot dealing with Tarat comprise almost three times the length of those dealing with other forms of Tum'ah. So to review the sequence of the presentation, within the laws of Tarat, we began chapter 13, verses 1 through 44, the different forms of Tarat based on the infection's appearance and location of the body, and the process of determining the status of the infection, including the various times of quarantine as determined by the diagnosis of the Kohen. We proceeded in verses 45 through 46 with the laws of the Mitzorah's conduct during his period of Tumah, including his exclusion from the Machaneh. In chapter 13, verses 47 through 59, we then proceeded with the laws of Tzarat of the Beged, the leprosy of the garments, which also concluded the Torah reading of Parshat Tazriah. In chapter 14, the beginning of Parshat Mitzorah, we began with the process of purification that allows the Mitzorah re-entry into the camp after having been cured, followed by Verses 10 through 20, the Mitzorah sacrifices brought on the eighth day of his purification process, which we saw was an additional stage necessary for full kapara and chinuch of the Mitzorah. This continued in verses 21 through 32, the option of a poor Mitzorah who cannot afford the standard offerings and thereby bring substitute offerings in the form of fowl. Then, chapter 14, verses 33 through 45, the laws of Tzarat on a house that we're going to continue with today through verse 53, teaching us what happens when the leprosy of the house spreads and the commandments of the priests not only to empty the house, but to undergo a very intensive and comprehensive process of purification. Lastly, we're going to conclude in verses 54 through 57, with a conclusion and a nice summary of all the laws of Tarat. But this brings us to the obvious question that we brought up last week as well, even from a preliminary survey of the structure, as to why the Torah places the section of Tzarat on a house at the end of the entire unit, rather than together with its discussion of the Tzarat of the body, Tzarat of the clothing, where it seemingly should appear. A closer look at the structure of Tzarat may help us answer this question. Like many other halachic sections that revolve around a single topic, the section of Tzarat divides more or less into two equal halves, corresponding not only to the division of chapters, but also the division of Parshiyot Teshavua. The first half in Parshat Tazriah, chapter 13, deals primarily with the laws of the impurity of Tzarat and covers 59 psukim. The bulk of the second half, chapter 14, is devoted to the laws of the purification process from Tumat Tzarat. The second half begins with a new dibur, a new opening from Hashem. If you recall, chapter 14, verse 1, This shall be the procedure for the Mitzorah on the day of his purification. And this section spans 57 verses. The majority of the two halves of the Tzarat section deal primarily with the laws of Tuman Tahra relevant to a person who is stricken with Tzarat of his body. At the ends of each half, there appears to be a section, almost an appendix, which addresses the manifestation of Tzarat on an inanimate object, 
garments in the first section and houses in the second section, respectively. So the first half, chapter 13, describing the different forms of bodily tzarat for the first 44 psukim, and the laws relevant to the mitzorah in verses 45 and 46, conclude with the laws of tzarat of a garment in verses 57 through 59. Correspondingly, the second half in chapter 14 outlines the procedure for mitzorah's purification from tzarat of the guf from the bodily tzarat for the first 32 verses, and then proceeds to the guidelines concerning tzarat habayit, a house stricken with tzarat, from verses 33 through 53. But the description of this structure does not provide a complete solution for why did the Torah choose to present the section of tzarat habeged as an appendix to the first half, and the laws of tzarat habayit as an appendix to the second half, and not vice versa? Moreover, why does the Torah separate these two appendices, which have a clear connection one to the other in the first place? Why not just present them together, either at the conclusion of the first half or at the conclusion of the second half? If you recall, when we discussed this in Parshat Tazria with regard to the position and the juxtaposition of Tzarat HaBeged, noting how it is an expansion of Tzarat HaGuf. In fact, it is the further expression of the impurity of a person manifest through his clothing. We then proceeded to see the parallels between the Mitzorah and his clothing and a Kohen and his respective clothes. Nonetheless, this does not answer the question as to why the next stage should have been Tzarat Habayit, the further expression of the person. As Chazal teach us, the stages should begin with Tzarat Habayit, and if the person does not internalize the messages of the punishment of his home, then it will hit closer to home his Beged, followed by actually hitting his flesh. In which case, we now, as we proceed with the laws of Tzarat Habayit, ask why wasn't this section of the initial plague of Tzarat juxtaposed to the other plagues of Tzarat before we started hearing about the process of purification. When we compare these two appendices, we find that there really is a difference between the laws outlined in each. The section dealing with Tzarat of the Beged does not contain any process of purification for a garment that's afflicted with Tzarat. For a garment that's declared definitively stricken with Tzarat is burned, there's no redemption. There's no way of saving the garment. Only if the signs of Tarat disappear after the garment is cleansed, then it shall be cleansed again and then declared pure. As opposed to a house that's stricken with Tarat. We will continue to learn today how a house requires a process of purification very similar to that undergone by a Mitzorah after being cured from his bodily Tarat. These two processes consist of the same basic components of two birds, a branch of cedar wood, hyssop, and crimson thread. This difference between the two appendices explains their respective locations. The tzarat of the beged belongs in the laws of Tumah addressed in chapter 13, because it's not really connected at all to chapter 14, which deals with the process of purification from tzarat, for there really isn't a means of fully purifying clothing that's infected with tzarat. Respectively, the laws of Tarat Habayat of chapter 14 could not have appeared at the end of chapter 13 because the laws of Tarat Habayat do include a process of the purification of the house. 
This procedure cannot be presented before the procedure of the purification of the Mitzorah himself, which opens the second half, because we're going to learn today that the laws of the purification of the house actually evolve from the laws of the person's purification and not vice versa. This is further underscored by the beginning or the exposition of Tzarat Habayit, which begins not only with the new dibur by Yidaber Adonai Moshe El Aharon Lemor in verse 33, but also the strange introduction that we expounded upon yesterday, Ki tavo el Eretz Knan asher noten lachem lachuza venatati negatzarat bevet Eretz recognizing that this is a particular form of tzarat, one that isn't connected to tzarat of the goof or tzarat of the bigot, but is going to be relevant only in Eretz Yisrael, in a case where one has houses of stone. That's why this appendix is detached from the preceding section through a new dibur, as opposed to the appendix of the first half. By Tzarat HaBeged, we don't find a new dibur, but rather it's joined to the first half without any interruption. So why then does the appendix of Tzarat HaBayit begin with a new dibur? The reason for this special introduction is now obvious. These halachot relevant to Tzarat HaBayit do not apply when they are conveyed to Am Yisrael, when Bnei Yisrael encamp by Harsinai. This section of laws will apply only in the future, teaching Bnei Yisrael of what to expect after they enter and settle Eretz Canaan. That's why the discussion of Tzarat Habayit appears only at the very end of the section of Tzarat. Nonetheless, we're going to see how the laws, or to be more exact, the process of purification of a house plagued with Tzarat is inextricably linked to the process of purification of a person who is inflicted with Tzarat. Let's continue then with verse 46, wherein we saw that if a house is going to have a sign of Tzarat and the stones are removed, the mortar is removed, the old mortar and the old stones are placed outside of the camp, then we wait to see what happens with the house. If the plague goes away, then uh, the house is declared pure. If the plague comes back again, after the stones have been taken out, after the house has been scraped, after it was replastered, then the Kohen comes in, looks, and behold, if the plague has spread in the house, it is malignant leprosy in the house, it is impure. Then he breaks down the house, together with the stones, all the timber, the mortar, carries them outside of the city into an impure area, and then pasuk membab, Whoever goes into the house during this time period wherein it's quarantined and shut up, he shall be considered impure until the evening. And anyone who even lies in the house has to wash his clothing. Anyone who eats in the home has to wash his clothes. If, after all this, the priest comes in and looks, and behold, the plague has not spread after this in the house, after the house was plastered, then the priest shall pronounce the house pure again, because the plague is healed. Nonetheless, there still is a process of purification. The priest takes two birds, cedar wood, scarlet, and hyssop, 
ולקחת את הארז ואת האזור ואת שני התולעת ואת הציפור החיה, וטבל אותם בדם הציפור השחוטה ובמים החיים, ויזל הבית שבע פעמים. וחיטא את הבית בדם הציפור ובמים החיים, ובציפור החיה ובעץ הארז ובאזוב ובשני התולעת. ושילח את הציפור החיה אל מחוץ לעיר אל פני השדה, וכיפר על הבית וטהר. And he kills one of the birds in an earthen vessel over running water. And he takes the cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet and the living bird and dips them in the blood of the slain bird and in the running water and sprinkles the house seven times. And he shall cleanse the house with the blood of the bird and with the running water and with the living bird and with the cedar wood and with the hyssop and with the scarlet. And then he lets go of the living bird out of the city into the open fields. So that he can achieve atonement for the house, and then it is considered pure. Zot ha-Torah l'chol nega ha-Tzarat v'la-Natek. This is the law for all types of plagues of leprosy, including the skull of the flesh, u-le-Tzarat ha-Beged v'la-Bayet, and the leprosy of a garment and a house, v'la-Se'it v'la-Sapachat v'la-Baharit, and for the rising or a scab or for a bright spot. All different manifestations of how Tzarat appears, different complexions. Lohorot biyom ha-tameh uviyom ha-tahor, zot Torat ha-tzarat. For the Kohen to teach and to diagnose when one is impure and when one is pure, this is the law of leprosy. What a beautiful bookend for how these laws of Tumah and Tahara began after the deaths of Nadav and Avihu. Back in chapter 10, verses 9, 10, 11, First, finding the expansion of how we distinguish between what God mandates as holy versus mundane, as impure versus pure, as expressed through the laws of the different foods. And then the responsibility of the Kohen to teach these laws to B'nai Yisrael as expounded upon in all the laws of Tarat wherein the Kohen has to be deeply involved both in the process of diagnosing someone with the possibility of Tzarat and certainly accompanying him through the process of purification. The end of the section, Zotorat Tzarat, teaches us that the Kohen is not only going to be the one to teach when one is impure, but this is the end of the section dealing with the purification not only of the home, but also of the person. We find then that a Kohen must ascertain that a mitzorah has indeed been healed of his condition, just as he has to ascertain that the house has really been cured of a similar condition. The Kohen was responsible for initially declaring the person as Tameh and causing his banishment from the community, and as such was also responsible for declaring the house as Tameh, so much so that the person has to take all of the possessions of the house outside before the Kohen comes, lest he declare it Tameh, and then all the contents will, post facto, be considered Tameh as well. We don't just find parallels between the initial diagnosis of a Kohen to a person, or respectively a home, in declaring them Tameh. We also find, then, numerous parallels in the process of purification. While the Mitzorah was still residing outside of the encampment of Am Yisrael, two birds were to be taken, together with a new earthenware vessel, filled with water drawn from a flowing spring. One of the birds was slaughtered above the vessel and its blood drained into the waters. The Kohen then takes the cedar wood, the hyssop, and the ribbon of wool dyed scarlet and bundles them together, securing the grouping with part of the scarlet ribbon. 
The living bird is brought together with the bundle so that its wingtips, head and tail are all in contact with it, and then all the items are ceremoniously immersed into the earthenware vessel. The Kohen then sprinkles the liquid seven times upon the hands of the Mitzorah, and then the living bird is released to its freedom. Keep in mind that that's exactly what we just read with regard to the purification of the home, but instead of sprinkling the person seven times, the house is sprinkled seven times with all this bundle of the slain bird with the running water and the hyssop and the scarlet, and then the living bird is let free. Only then is there kapara for the home. With regard to the Mitzorah, we recognize that the rest of the ritual described in the Psukim speaks about how he must shave all the visible concentrations of hair upon his body and immerse himself before entering the confine of the camp. This was a transitional stage before Chinuch, before he then goes back to the Mikdash after seven days wherein he has to shave his hair again and immerse a second time, he still remains unfit to partake of sacrificial meats until the presentation of his offerings on the eighth day. It was on the eighth day wherein he brings a sin offering, a burnt offering, and a guilt offering, together with a mincha and oil, and then he partakes of a ceremonial presentation, including the placement of some of the blood and oil upon parts of his body, as we described at the beginning of chapter 14. We expounded upon the latter part of the ceremony as describing how he undergoes a rejuvenation, almost as if he is a Kohen whose status is going to be promoted from one who wasn't just Tameh, but almost near death, to a transfer of the status, a rebirth of sorts that is going to be expressed through his re-entrance to the Mikdash. What if we go back to the parallels between the person and the home? The process of taking two birds, setting one of them free, the three species of cedarwood, scarlet, hyssop, as well as the need for living waters and a free-flowing spring. What is the meaning of all of these specific items that are needed for the complex choreography of purification, both for the person and for the home? We've discussed how the dominant color is red. How, whether it's the scarlet or the blood that is going to be seen, is clearly meant not just to atone, but almost to bring life back into the whiteness of the Mitzorah, whether it's his body or his house. But now we're going to note other reasons for the parallel. It is not only a similar process that we find by the Kohanim, nor by just the process that we find in Sefer Bamidbar with regard to someone who came in contact with a dead person who also has to be rejuvenated in a similar vein. But if we look not forward, but we look methodologically back at what we're already familiar with, we've seen some of these ingredients. Namely, by Am Yisrael, as they were about to leave the lands of Mitzrayim, and the plague of the firstborn was about to strike, that's when Hashem commanded the people to prepare for Karban Pesach. This special sacrifice was a statement of Am Yisrael's trust in Hashem, their demonstration of faith in God, away from Egyptian polytheism, and they had to slaughter the lamb on the eve of the 14th of Nisan, then gather the blood into a receptacle, smear the blood upon the lintel and the doorposts of their huts in order to ward off the negif, the destroyer from their households. And then the Torah mentions explicitly in Shemot, Perek Yudbet, Pasuk Hafbet, Ulekachtem agudat ezov, utvaltem badam asher basaf, vihigatem el hamashkof, velshte hamezuzot min hadam asher basaf, Batem lo ish mi petach beto ad boker. 
This is the first time in the Torah where we find a precedent for the purification rites of the Mitzorah, including the dipping of the hyssop into a mixture of blood and spring water, which will then be found in a series of steps associated with the purification rites, also of someone who comes in contact with a human corpse, as we will find in Parshat Chukat. In these three situations, Karban Pesach, Taharat HaMitzorah, and Taharat HaMemet, a liquid that is either exclusively blood or at least includes in it the blood as a main ingredient, is first gathered into some sort of receptacle, typically an earthenware one, and then a bundle of organic material that includes the hyssop is dipped into the liquid and some sort of sprinkling or smearing is then done with it. The Ibn Ezra in his commentary on chapter 14 verse 4 not only links these various ceremonies together, but maintains that the paradigm for all of them is the Karban Pesach of Shemot Perik Yudbet. Behold the purification rites of the Mitzorah, the house stricken with Sarat, and the individual who has come into contact with the human corpse are all similar. All of them are modeled after the Passover sacrifice in Egypt. When we begin to consider Karban Pesach and Mitzrayim a little more closely, other similarities materialize. Firstly, we note that the Pesach sacrifice represents Am Yisrael's emergence as a nation. They are going to leave Egypt as a free people, a major transformation. They will be liberated from bondage and become a people unto God. But first, they must partake of the Karban Pesach, not leaving the threshold. Their journey includes spreading blood over the doors of their home, and then finally crossing over as part of the spiritual process that will begin an odyssey that brings them to Harsinai, and years later to Eretz Yisrael. In other words, the national redemption is their goal, but they have to first partake of a process that is going to enable them to shift from a state of Galut to Geula. The Mitzorah as well is stricken with a condition that Chazal maintain is a sequence of some type of spiritual deficiency, and therefore he is banished from the camp. In effect, he also has to undergo some type of Galut, a physical and spiritual exile before he begins his process of repair and redemption of Gu'ula. He waits and anticipates until the Kohen pronounces him fit for beginning this process. And just like Am Yisrael on a national level, waiting to hear beginning the process of rebirth and redemption, so too he waits for that day. And as that day finally dawns, he too takes the ritual objects of Yitziat Mitzrayim, he takes blood and the hyssop, and he marks the moment of his self-transformation before he begins the arduous process of returning to the camp and experiencing his gu'ula. So too, this becomes the purification rite as someone who comes in contact with death. Any man who came into contact with a human corpse is unfit to stand before Hashem. The Mishkan is the place where one experiences Hashem's presence as the source of life and thereby our ultimate destination. Tum'ah is the antithesis of this. We don't blame the human being for being mortal, but we want to make sure that he understands that this is part of a transition. While in the state of Tum'ah, we suffer a certain spiritual estrangement and a form of galut, a form of exile from life, from vitality. When we're ready to emerge from that state and stand in the presence of God, we basically are undergoing a state of gu'ula. So once again, we take a mixture of living waters and ashes of life and death and sprinkle them upon the individual with the organic hyssop. 
which is a plant that thrives in arid and ashen environments, and thereby the threshold of experience is once again marked by taking the same items that mark the passage of Am Yisrael from death to life, from Galut to Gu'ula, from a state of Tum'ah, wherein one can transcend morbidity to once again securing life. There is a fundamental link between the slave in Mitzrayim, the Mitzorah banished from the camp, and the person who has experienced death. They all share a common fundamental link. Rabbi Michael Haddon phrases this beautifully. All have experienced in one form or another the sting and the stupor of mortality, whether physical and real or spiritual and no less real. Albeit, we may no longer have a Beit HaMikdash, and Sarat may be a phenomenon of the past, but we can certainly relate to the precedence of this all, namely Karvan Pesach, the transition from Galut to Gu'ula, from a physical state of distance from God to a spiritual and national destiny of Am Yisrael expressed through their closeness with Hashem. I'd like to argue that the same process then is not only going to be manifest by the person, the individual, who undergoes this transition, but the bayit, the home itself. For after all, it all began, the original process of transition takes place as the person is going to shift from inside the house of Mitzrayim, outside of the house of Mitzrayim, into a state of national redemption. And therefore, it is not only the person who has to undergo a process which will enable him to come from outside of the Machanet to once again be part of the people, but it's also his home, his home that has to be identified as one that was previously in a state of galut, literally quarantined and excommunicated, to being part of the homes of Am Yisrael again, a means of identifying not only the person, but the home, the family, the objects within, as those that are meant to serve as an extension of the Mikdash, as an extension of that national destiny for the entire people. It's almost as if the house then has to be reborn, just as the house took on a new qualification in Mitzrayim. Blood that's smeared on the home in Mitzrayim is once again smeared on the homes of Am Yisrael in order for them to internalize the message of this transition and recognize that it's not only the person, but the home that is going to be redeemed as manifest through sending away the living bird as a sign of Gu'ula. With this we end the shiurim focusing on Sarat and continue with the rest of the parsha of Mitzorah, which deals with other forms of physiological tum'ah, namely emissions that come from males and females respectively. So we're going to have somewhat shorter shiurim as we focus on the Zav and the Shechvat Zerah in the next shiur, followed by the Nida and the Zava, and then we'll summarize the transition from the laws of Tuman Tahara back to the regularly scheduled program Achare Mot Shnei Bnei Aharon. Shabbat Shalom.